Ladies and gentlemen, uh, let's get started. Welcome to the LSE for this evening's event, The Future of Aging. My name is Carrie Friese, and I am an associate professor of sociology here at the LSE. Um, I am very pleased to be here to welcome our panel this evening. Uh, we have uh, uh, Professor Rebecca Aldenate, who is the Director of Biotechnology uh, School, Faculty of Science at the University of Santo Tomas in Chile. Her research involves the study of the molecular components of the aging process and neurodegenerative and neuromuscular diseases associated with aging. Nikki Girard, uh, who is an author, in 2016, she won the Orwell Prize for Exposing Britain's Social Ills for her reporting on the care and understanding of dementia patients in the UK. She is also a co-founder of the JOBS campaign uh, that fights for more compassionate care in hospital for people with dementia. Michael Murphy, who is a professor of demography in the Department of Social Policy here at the LSE, and Jane Voss, who is the Director of Policy and Research at Age UK. So thank you all for joining us. Um, Professor Joanna Latimer <coughs> asked that I send her apologies for not being here this evening. She wanted me to say that she is striking for her younger colleagues to maintain pension rights, which have been put <coughs> under threat. She also wanted to note the irony of this, given the topic of tonight's panel, <laughs> and the need for individuals to secure better financial as well as other support in retirement as we enter the post-welfare era. I want to start by giving a little bit of history and context to this panel, which was inspired by collaborative research that Joanna and I have been developing over the past several years regarding new biosocial models of aging. We are particularly interested in probing what ideas about aging as plastic and manipulable mean for social life. The Beverage 2.0 Festival seemed like an ideal opportunity to put our research into the larger conversations we are interested in having. As sociologists, we understand aging in terms of the social determinants of health where disadvantage accumulates over the life course. We also understand aging in terms of ageism, where fears of being and becoming old are linked with both the idea that successful aging is about prolonging youthfulness, as well as concerns about how one will be cared for if and when independence and autonomy are lost. We see how the ideal of successful aging is being capitalized upon with the anti-aging industry and highly individualistic ways. But we also see how these individualizing approaches to aging are resisted through more communitarian efforts where the publicness of private issues is emphasized. Finally, as sociologists, we also recognize that aging and aged populations represent a significant challenge to the welfare state. With the average life expectancy increasing from 66.7 years in 1942 to 81.25 years in 2017, population aging is a significant social transformation of the 20th and 21st centuries. Tonight, we're going to discuss how aging could come to dominate the giant issue of health and social care and potentially all areas of the welfare state. And in the process, we will raise questions about, it, what it, about what it means to age well, 
for whom and who is responsible for this. So before we turn to our panelists, uh, for those of you who are Twitter users in the audience, the hashtag for tonight's event is LSE Beverage. I would ask that you please put your phones on silent so that it does not disrupt the talk this evening. And the event is being recorded and will hopefully be made available as a podcast subject to no technical difficulties. And as usual, there will be an opportunity for you to ask questions of our panelists shortly. But now I will turn to our panelists and I have two questions that each of them are going to address to, to kick us off. Um, the first question is that is to start by saying this panel is, has intentionally brought very different disciplines and different professions together to talk about the future of aging. And so if each of you, uh, of you could define what aging means to you from your professional background, I think that would be a really helpful starting point. And then the second question really starts with an observation. In 1942, the problem of aging was largely defined by beverage in two ways. One was the link between aging and poverty due to the inability to work, which was addressed through the pension scheme. The other problem was a lower fertility rate combined with life extension later in life. And that was addressed through various measures meant to support families while incentivizing later retirement ages. So I, I'd be curious for you guys to reflect on how the problem of aging compares today, to what extent do these problems persist, and what are the new problems of aging that we confront? And we will go in the order that I introduced you and start with Rebecca. Well, thank you for, for inviting me to the, this panel. And, um, I'm the scientist of the panel, so maybe uh, my idea, uh, I will, I will um, give you three main, main concepts of uh, my idea of, uh, of aging. First, I see aging uh, as a process that starts the day you born and ends the day you die. Sorry, it's an awful uh, thought, <laughs> but, but it's, um, it's a kind of uh, the process that has one direction that is important in, in the point of uh, scientific because uh, people ask me you can back, if you come back. So I think it's just one direction. And uh, this means that every event that you, um, a, per a person can endure during the, its life will affect and can modulate the velocity of aging. That is a, a very important thing. And the second aspect is uh, what are the evidence, the scientific evidence that indicates that this process can be modulated. Um, there is a, um, two main aspects that is, uh, can modulate Genetic, uh, by being genes, you can uh, introduce modification uh, through manipulate genetically. Um, uh, this means can, uh, the idea is we work with models. We don't work with uh, humans. So our models 
tell us the, that the, you can um, change the velocity of, of, of aging. So um, I work with personal with a model that is uh, a worm, that is a simple modest model that is um, uh, the first uh, evidence that if you can mute a gene, you can uh, change the longevity 50 times. Um, so this, um, uh, today you can say two, two lines of evidence. One is the restricted the dietary, the um, restricted calories intake, and other are the mutation of a control that can uh, f uh, sense the nutrient and uh, um, can extend that, uh, the, the, uh, the life. But the uh, longevity that is extended in these uh, models, and when I speak with models, I also speak of uh, invertebrate models and also mammalian models. Also. Um, we, we work also with mice. So the pathway of uh, um, intake, the food intake, the calories restriction is the same in these simple models and also in mammals. So um, this um, evidence told us that uh, those uh, animals that live longer also are, are healthier. So they don't seem that uh, get diseases. So you can separate longevity and health. That is, uh, that's um, because this is the second point. It's uh, longevity uh, associated with more risks of uh, uh, diseases. This, uh, nobody wants to live 200 years and uh, be uh, as, uh, exposed to different diseases. So um, uh, now we, we want to speak about uh, health span, no longevity. And um, also my studies indicate, and in this case I will speak about my, my uh, recent evidence that um, I see that the, you can modulate the, the, um, the velocity of the progression of the aging in certain time of the life, not everywhere. So there is a, a specific time that is more sensitive for that. This is young, young uh, adult. So it's when you begin your reproductive stage for mammal. So in this time, what you uh, what you do it uh, it, it uh, will depend then how um, the velocity of aging. So there are a few genes that that you can affect it. Well, we work with this animal. You you can affect uh, the genes, the pathway of insulin. And I know when I say insulin, all people, oh, the diabetics. No, it's insulin and related with the nervous system. So 
there is a uh, there is a kind of uh, pathway that can send the nutrient and the fertility. That is the part of the question of the, um, the second question mm -hmm. that you ask. So there is a relation between them. And in this, in this particular window of time, we can modulate uh, this um, uh, progress of the aging. And the, the, um, how, how, how most of the problem can persist of the 1924, uh, uh, most of the problem about uh, poverty in the, in the old people, I think nowadays it persists in the same way. Maybe you are speaking about that. Um, but also, I think we, we must uh, come in so uh, economics that people from here uh, maybe are the future that are going to decide uh, where the money must invest uh, in terms of research programs. We need um, to to see the aging like a um, way of, uh, not uh, for the diseases, not for um, trying to, to, to have a drug for each disease. Uh, just uh, to, the way to see aging like a um, target for a new drug is the problem if the clinical trials are so expensive and so long for, for aging. So to have one drug for aging is, um, that is uh, now is a trying in uh, like metformin or, or resveratrol, that there's going to be one drug, I think it's going to be a pool of drugs <laughs> because it's a multifactorial. So maybe in the future this is a, a, a more, more near than I that I I can see <coughs> how to treat uh, aging like a um, a kind of uh, drug target. Very interesting. So you think we could treat aging? Yes. With why not? <laughs> <laughs> I hope. I hope. <laughs> and cure aging? No, not. I think we we can man manipulate, but mm -hmm. um, so so now the, um, the most of the uh, investment or the policies are going to, to diseases in particular, but we have to um, see the the global uh, problem, not just the diseases. Very interesting. Thank you, Rebecca. <laughs> and now we will turn to Nikki. Yeah, hi. And um, before I say what my definition of ageing and old age is, I just want to say, first of all, by and large, for most of us, it's a really good thing that we're, that we're living longer. But also I think the fact that we're living longer means that we need a kind of paradigm shift in the way that we think about ageing and the way that we think about the whole shape of a life. Um, so my definition, I'm going to start with saying what it's not. 
I don't think it's a number. Old age isn't a number. It's not chronological. It's not an illness. It's not something pathological. To be old is not something that we should be ashamed of. And it's not avoidable except by dying before you get old. Um, and then I'm going to divide it into two. First of all, it's something that's bodily. It's about frailty, loss of vigour, and a kind of increased helplessness. When the body starts to fail and it starts to wear out and it starts to let us down, it starts rather early to let us down, so consider the, consider the teeth, <laughs> consider the eyes, consider the heart, consider the memory. Um, but it's also, we need to think about ageing and being old in, in the kind of the way that we relate to the world. So perhaps one definition of proper old age is when you can no longer work, and I don't mean just can no longer be employed, is when you can no longer work in the world. And there's um, a kind of helplessness that comes from this, and you need to be cared for by others, and you don't have as much control over your own life, as much self-possession. And so, of course, for many people, this will bring a kind of very painful time of invisibility, of lack of purpose, of profound loneliness, sometimes poverty, of fear, and a loss of self-value. Um, but I'm going to add to these two ways of thinking about it. There's a kind of emotional and psychological way of thinking about what ageing and old age means. And that is more positive. It's that it's to be full of years. It's to be full of experiences. It's to be full of selves. I mean, I think that we're never one age. So I'm a child and I'm a teenager and I'm a young woman and I'm also 60 this year, and I contain all those selves. And actually, that explains why it's so... You know, my most recent self, my, 60, my nearly 60-year-old self, is like an imposter, and I'm endlessly surprised when I look in the mirror. And I think most of us are like this. Most of us mm -hmm. know that we contain all the selves that we've ever been, and that's very rich, and that's another way of thinking about it. And also, it's the natural shape of our life. You can't be young if you're not going to get old. You can't begin if you're not going to finish. So to be old is to be living, if you're lucky enough to be old, then it's to be living the natural shape of your life. And it's to know that you're nearing your end. And it's to be more sharply aware of your own mortality. So that's my definition, which is rather vague. And then the problems associated with it and the different problems associated now to... to and my maths is terrible. I'm trying to work out how many years ago it is between 40 to... Anyway, <laughs> years ago. Um, so I would say that now, for some, for many of us, this is the very best time to be old in all sorts of ways. But for some, old age brings desolation. And sometimes this is just luck, or what you'd call genes, I think. Um, and there's also a cruel systemic inequality built into our experience of ageing. So, you know, Beveridge was saying that old age brings poverty, and I'd turn that around and say that actually 
poverty hastens old age, radically hastens old age. And I'm just going to just give you one example of that, which is that in, prison, in prisons in the UK, at the age of 50, a prisoner will have a health profile that's 15 years older than 50, so that by 55, that person is old in all the ways that we assess it. Um, and that just seems outrageous to me. And that's replicated out, out of prisons, you know, where some people are poor and disadvantaged and they get old quicker um, and they suffer the problems of old age much more. Um, but I'm actually going to just more focus on one very obvious problem that this prolonged old age brings, which is the one that I know most about, which is why I'm sitting here now, which is the problem of dementia. And of course, some people who are young or younger have dementia, but mostly it's an illness that's associated with old age, and which is why the numbers are growing so rapidly. Even though I have to say that the rate is going down, nevertheless, the numbers are growing. Um, and it's been called the plague of our century, the disease of our time. It's an illness that unpicks our sense of self and dismantles it. It's the illness that we most fear. It's one of the illnesses that we're absolutely most likely to get. Um, and at its worst, it's like a radically slowed down dying. And also, more relevantly for this discussion today, dementia simply doesn't fit into the structures that we have in our society. Uh, so I'm just going to say just a very few statistics about dementia, just to put it into kind of proportion. So in 2015, about 850,000 people in the UK were living with some form of dementia. The same number was thought to be undiagnosed. As the population ages, it's estimated this figure will increase to over 1 million by 2021, 2 million by 2051. In the States, the estimate in 2017 was 5.5 million people, and according to the WHO, there are around 47 people living with dementia in the world, and someone gets dementia every three seconds. So if it's not us, it's someone we know and someone we're close to. It's like a sniper in the garden. Then the financial cost is huge. So the Alzheimer's Society estimates that in the UK alone, the cost of dementia is 26 billion. In the world, it's $818 billion, and that's steadily rising, set to reach $1 trillion, whatever that means, by 2018, which is significantly more than the cost of cancer, stroke, and heart disease combined. And then I'll just briefly tell you about caring for people with dementia. There are more than 700,000 men and women who look after people with dementia in the UK. 60 to 70% of them are, surprise, surprise, women. This is unpaid care. Um, the longer the caring lasts, the higher the percentage of them, the higher the percentage of carers are likely to be women. In other words, women endure with this task for longer. 44% of carers have long-standing illness or disability themselves, including, including depression, which is not surprising. 
Many of them are partners or spouses and therefore are likely to be older themselves. In the UK in 2013, an estimated 150,000 years was spent in caring for people with dementia. Or Actually, I've written a figure down of how many hours it is, and I can't read that because it's 10 digits long, and I don't know what that means. I guess that means it's 1,340,000,000 million hours. But I might have got... I can't quite understand what that means. A lot, a lot of hours. So, and then, of course, outside of all this, there's the cost in human terms, which is what I mostly want us to think about, which is the shame, the confusion, the guilt, the fear, the loneliness, the sheer awfulness that the disease brings in its wake. It's the story of suffering, and like suffering, it lasts. Its meanings are physiological, psychological, social, political, philosophical. In a society that so values autonomy and individuality and self-possession and youth and success and beauty, it forces us to ask ourselves what we owe to each other as a member of society, as a member of a community, just as a human being. And, but because it's so disturbing and so terrifying and because we don't want to think of it we often look away from it trying not to see it and we often dehumanize people who have advanced dementia and we treat them as objects not subjects um, and I guess one of the things that that we try to do in the campaign that we run is to continually say that we need to say us and not them we are not they. Thank you. We already have, I think, some really nice cross-cutting themes about aging as a process, but one that becomes, where maybe there's sort of hot spots within that process. <laughs> yes, many hot spots across the life course, and aging as a process that contains itself, but also raising some of the tensions between aging and, and disease and the relationships and, and differences. So. Thank you. And now we have Jane. Right, well, thank you. Um, this is so fascinating to hear the other people's perspective because actually my definition is very simple. Um, it's one word, what is aging? Aging is life. It's the common human condition that we're all going through all the time. And um, so we need to consider it in every sphere of activity. And um, as people have said, it's also something where each stage of the life course builds on each other. So you might say, um, I work for Age UK, which is the UK's largest charity dealing with um, older people. Why do you actually need a charity like Age UK? Um, I think because we look at things from the other end of the telescope, thinking back from people perhaps who aren't necessarily considered that much. So what we try and do is look at the totality of people's lives. And for example, we've developed an index of well-being in later life that tries to put together all those different factors from your health, your wealth, your social resources to find out what makes the difference. And surprise, surprise, people who have high incomes, good health, um, and strong social networks tend to be in the top um, well-being groups and those who are on their own, poorer, in poor health tend to be at the bottom end of the well-being group. But one factor that actually stood out as making a really significant part 
of the well-being, of adding to well-being, was actually um, being engaged with the world around you, whether or not it was through work, but also things through volunteering and also um, creative and cultural participation came out really highly as well. So, but you couldn't take any one of these things out. They were all really important. So, um, looking back at beverage, um, I thought, I would just sort of think, what, what's changed? Well, sadly, poverty is still with us. Um, older people now are sometimes seen as the lucky generation, and in many ways, um, they are. But we still have 1.9 older people living in in poverty now. And those people are more likely to be single, to be older, to be in BME groups, and also private renters. So there's a lot of um, similarities with sort of some of the challenges facing other age groups. And what's more worrying, actually, to us is that the numbers of people, older people in poverty, are actually starting to rise because the largest drop actually occurred at the beginning of this century. But since about um, 9, 10, it's been sort of stable and now the numbers are starting to tick up again. And we know that you really can't take your foot off the pedal if you want to deal with poverty. So beverage is still very much front of our mind. Um, later extension into later life and fertility. Um, later life, I'm sure perhaps um, Michael will mention its extension into later life. But I also thought um, I was. I don't know if any of you have read Bread for All. It's by Chris Rennick at um, University of York, and I really recommend it. It's the Um, history of the welfare state and how beverage came into being and I just thought there's a really interesting quote from the um, introduction which was in the first half of the 20th century British people were fascinated by questions about fertility and what these questions meant for the country's future while the public digested scientific research that warned plausibly although with a few important caveats, that Britain's population could dwindle to as few as five million within a century. Social researchers inquired into people's lives to find out why they seemed to want fewer children than their parents and grandchildren's. Well, I think we still have similar debates, but perhaps um, more recently a lot of the debates have been around migration and actually the role of that in, um, for example, in providing health care um, is is a really important issue. So what are the new problems of ageing? Well, obviously, although we're living longer, not all of us are living better, as Nikki has said. Um, the longevity, it feels to me a bit like a tide. Um, and as the tide pulls out and people are living longer, um, the sort of diseases of later old age are starting to be exposed, more people with Alzheimer's more, and other forms of dementia, but also cancer and a sort of disease of the social, of the lack of the social network, like loneliness. And that has a really big social and health impact as well. <coughs> so it's associated with higher incidence of strokes, heart disease, falls, etc., greater association with morbidity. So all of those are problems now, but for me, a lot of uh, one of the new problems of ageing, or perhaps it's one that's been here all along, but um, is particularly important now, is the question of attitudes towards age. Um, 
we're living at a time when people, can, we were talking about this earlier, can still be denied treatment just because of their age, irrespective of their health, at a time when there are 200, over 200,000 older people waiting for their um, deprivation of liberty to be assessed. For those of you, does anybody come across dolls? It's a very cosy name for actually um, a safeguard for older people who are locked up. And over 200,000 people are still waiting, uh, oh sorry, had um, um, applications for um, dolls were received by councils a couple of years ago. Um, another issue around ageing is that um, because you're older, sometimes people are assumed to have diseases or conditions they do not have. Um, a quote that a colleague brought to my attention from a recent um, academic paper was, in a large sociology of ageing course at a Canadian university, the lecturer said, I asked the students of normal university age to keep a diary for a week of how many times they forgot something, anything, or misplaced something. And fully a third to a half of these 20-somethings would have been diagnosed with Alzheimer's had <laughs> the same reports as 80 or 90-year-olds to a geriatrician. So, um, as well as talk about problems, I'd really like to turn this round and talk about some of the opportunities. So, for example, um, people over the age of 65 are contributing 50 billion to the economy through their work. They're contributing 93 billion through their informal caring. And childcare, um, eight, sorry, nearly 9 billion. And that's bearing in mind that these are figures for people over the age of 65. And actually, most grandparents, are, you know, they hit their grandparenting years in their 50s. So um, we can change how we age, is a statement, I think, is what you were saying as well. Aging is malleable, and um, it would be fantastic. Our new challenge, our new beverage challenge, might be to look at the barriers to successful aging. Um, so one of those, for example, might be the lack of social care, the way um, one, it's, it's, it's really in crisis in this country. We're promised a green paper this year, um, but even if that comes up with a solution, and we sincerely hope it does, and we're working hard to try and influence that, it'll be some years before that probably takes place. So in the meantime, we're sort of staggering on. But this really requires a completely new, fresh way of looking at how we maintain our health into later life. Um, I'm going to stop there. But I'm um, looking forward to Michael's. Oh, great. Thank you. Thank you. And I think this question of how to, to value the care that the elderly provide is crucial. Thank you. Michael. Thanks for Thank you. I'll regather from the, the top title. I'm going to be uh, using some numbers. Uh, <laughs> okay. um, right. Well, it's nice to look at the past. The past is it's nice to know, but the future is actually what we need to know. But of course, the future doesn't come out of nowhere. It's, it comes from the past. So what I'm going to do is talk about some of, some of the trends and particularly what may happen in the, in the future. Um, and if I could just find the, uh, this one. 
keyboard. Okay. Oh, right. Okay. Okay. With some some basic information. If and also think about aging. It's not only something which occurs in the UK. It's actually occurring not only elsewhere, but in a much more extreme form. There are two definitions that we tend to use for aging. One is individual aging, that is the process by which people live longer over time. That's a biological mechanism, as pointed out. It's a, a sort of lesser function, which eventually ends in death, which means that we tend to measure uh, individual aging in terms simply of, of life expectancy. And at the, the bottom here, I've shown what was the typical levels when Beveridge was uh, producing his uh, policies. Um, for example, about nine years um, in China, people would live in 1950. In the UK, about 13 years. Today, um, UK, that figure is around 20 years. We might expect it to go up to 25 years at age 65, 65 years time. China started much worse than us, but it's catching up. And by say, 2080, we might expect China's Chinese person living uh, age 65 to have roughly the same number of years as we do in Britain. So there's been a convergence between different countries. And one of the interests is what's responsible for those, those changes. Um, we can look at the, the, what influences uh, longevity. It not only occurs what your experience is through life, but even before you're born. And that can also be important in how long people live. Uh, whether you drink, whether you smoke, your standard of living, your housing, your childhood, uh, disease environment are all important in that. So we want to look at how these uh, actually change over time. And so we can look into the future and say, roughly speaking, um, we've got twice as many years in 2080 as we had in 1950. That means, other things being equal, we've got 20, double the amount of time to experiencing like dementia. I mean, Dickie's pointed out, dementia rates are declining, but nevertheless, um, they're not declining at sufficient rate to overcome the increase in numbers of older people. But on the other hand, what we've also got is that you know, children born today, will ha almost all of them will have four grandparents alive. You know, there's a very positive aspect of, you know, people tend to be negative about some of the, uh, these aging facts. There's very positive aspects as well. And so we can say that you know, there has been this change over time. The other main impact, I think, of population, this improvement in population ageing, is that at the moment, the British official projections suggest that a child born today will live for more than 90 years, uh, and that over a third of them will reach age 100. So what we have is a very different profile of society in the future as we have to adapt to this stretching of a life. That involves the education, work, and retirement ages. And how the social relations would actually uh, deal with that is something that, that Beveridge perhaps didn't have to confront, but we might well have to do so. The second um, area that uh, we can think about in terms of deficient aging is population aging. 
That's to do with the relative numbers, proportions of young to old people. And we can see that over time, there's been a much greater increase in the number of older people. Perhaps the most striking one at the global level is that they were, in 1950, about 14 million people aged 80 and over. In 2080, we expect that number to be up to over 700 million. You know, absolutely huge uh, increase in numbers of older people. The overall population is increasing as well, but only by a factor of four. So there's been a shift in the population, and that is population aging. It's tempting to think that that is largely reflecting the improvements in longevity we've seen below. It is largely that, but also change of fertility have had a major impact as well. And over this shows um, the proportions of people in various age groups in China and the United Kingdom. Uh, we can see that uh, United Kingdom, the uh, numbers of older people um, will have increasing more than those of working age or children. In, in the UK, we expect the number of children to remain more or less constant uh, over that extended period. Uh, in China, on, on the other hand, we expect to see a reduction in the numbers of children but a massive increase in the number of older people. Um, we also see that in the United Kingdom, that that proportion uh, of old, uh, that number of older people is accelerating around now, around 2020. That graph is actually shooting up. So we technically refer to that as the pig in the python. That is the, the large number of births in 1950s and 1960s those groups are now moving into the older age groups, and that is uh, leading to an increase in uh, the proportions of older people. And that has been much of the concern about, about population aging. Sustainability of systems in the context of an increase in the number of people potentially needing health care, social care, uh, informal care, uh, and uh, and not an in a corresponding increase in the number of people around to provide that care. So those are the, the sorts of issues. What would Beveridge have thought about this? Well, poverty was, was an issue in the 1950s. It still is, but it's been considerably reduced. I think the main problems now are even we now see that, in fact, older people are sometimes regarded as being overprivileged. They have been better protected from austerity than other groups. And I suppose one of the rather unfortunate things is the extent of intergeneral, the potential intergeneral conflict that we have from that. There'll be a slight change in, uh, in that. The other main uh, area is uh, Beveridge's um, uh, recognition of the importance of fertility as well as mortality in the process of population aging. And that the need to uh, increase working lives. If is, there is some view that the, the balance between the number of potential workers, these are not all workers, obviously, not, not everyone in those ages uh, uh, actually works, for example, but um, increasing working age is one of the main policies now which is being used to uh, 
advocate in order to overcome perceived difficulties about population aging. Um, that is possibly being optimistic and it's something that we, we do need to care. But I will finish up by saying these are trivial uh, compared to the implications of population aging in the developing world. In, in Britain, it's taken 100 years for the proportion of older people to go from 7% to 21%. In somewhere like South Korea, it's about 25 years. In China, just over 30 years. Virtually all the growth in older people is going to occur outside places like Europe. There'll be an increase of perhaps um, 1 billion people aged 65 and over between now and 2050. Of that 1.6 billion, only 70 million will actually occur in Europe. The great majority of that will occur in Asia, with a very substantial fraction occurring in Africa, considered a continent which has very little issues about population aging up until now. Um, so I think, what do I say, Beveridge can now say that China now is very pretty much in its demographics a bit like um, Britain was in the 1950. And I think that is where one really needs to put the thought into the policies which are needed to address the negative influence of population aging. But we must also say ultimately there's been perhaps the greatest achievement of humanity over the last century was essentially doubling the number of years a child could expect to live um, from birth. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. So we will now um, open the discussion up to questions. I'm going to let my students on the sociology of health and illness ask the first question. So Victoria. And then we'll open up more generally. Hi, thank you. Um, yeah, we've actually got kind of two separate questions that I'm just going to ask at the same time, so I hope that's okay. Um, the first question that we had was, how do we go about reconceptualizing aging in ways that are not negative for both the older person as an individual as well as in terms of the welfare state? And then our second question was, how do we give elderly persons more choice in later life in deciding what they consider to be a good and fulfilling life? Thank you. I'll begin. I always begin. Um, I, so I'm not quite sure if this is answering your question, but what I feel really strongly about is that if we think of it as, you called it stretching, so that, you know, you're not old now at 60 or 65 or 70, you're kind of, you're younger for longer. I think that we need to reconfigure the whole way we think about education, the way we think about work patterns, and the way we think about stopping work and when retirement happens. And it's kind of got to be, it's got to be, there's got to be such a political will behind that, and employers have got to get behind that. So for instance, I was thinking earlier, you know, the busiest bit of my life probably was when I was in my 30s, when I was working more than full time, and I had four little kids. Um, and so everything happened together. And then you get less busy 
as you have more time to be busy. And so at the age of 65 or 67 or something, you're supposed to stop working when you have the most time and often the most energy. So we've just got to start thinking more imaginatively about how we live. You know, people should be able to work part-time more. Men and women should be more equal in the way they think about care and the way that they think about work and the way they think about housework. And you've got to kind of shuffle everything up in order to kind of liberate people at the end of their lives, as well as in the middle of their lives. Was that, I think that maybe not have answered your question, but you know. <laughs> um, I, I could, if I could come in and just say that actually, um, one thing I've noticed is how diverse the later older population is. And I think that's one of the challenges um, that now, you see older people are out and proud. We've got one of the oldest transgender women in one of our um, local Age UK groups. Um, we have, we see a, people who are wanting to work, carrying on working into their 80s, but then we also see people forced out of the workplace, either because they've got caring responsibilities or because of their own poor health. And often they're people in the, you know, the poorer um, age groups, as, as Nikki pointed out, older prisoners are really um, old before their time. So for a, a real challenge for the welfare state, it seems to me, is how you recognize as a country that range of diversity, the fact that for some people will be willing, able and keen to work on, whereas for other people they, and include a lot of people to be honest, in, in my, gener my generation, my age groups, I'm, I'm 60 this year too, um, who are sort of counting the days and sort of thinking, gosh, can I sort of carry on until it's time to draw my state pension, the increasing state pension age. So that's one of the challenges and welfare systems tend not to deal with that diversity very well at all. So if anybody has any answers, let us know. <laughs> Does anyone, do you want to add anything? Okay, why don't we open up the discussion? We have one, we're gonna take questions in groups of three and if we could keep the questions concise, that would be great. I think we have one, two and three. We'll take those three questions first. I sort of, <clears throat> well, I'm 85 myself now, and I think I'm getting a bit of Alzheimer's because I forgot my hearing aid today. But what I'm concerned about is people get bright ideas without always thinking them through. Like Grayling, who has who's a minister and has a ministerial car, thinks that it's not necessary for them to have buses anymore. And one of the things that seems to be going about in the health service now is that if you bring together um, practices um, in one, make practices amalgamate, little small practices amalgamate, then of course that would be more that would be more useful. That would be more useful if you make the practices amalgamate because it'll save money. But then how? do the people get to the practices unless you have a transport structure like they have in France where you can tell the time by and goes through every village you can think of. Um, you know, they don't think through the structures or how much it means in people's lives. I've got uh, a relative, her sister lives down 
in, in Oxfordshire, in um, Dorchester on Thames, and all the buses have been cancelled there. So everybody's reliable on friends giving them lifts. And, and then the economy of the side of it, how many people can afford to be taking buses and taxis to get from A to B. And I think the things should be linked up a bit, bit more. I wonder if people think that through a bit. And, and in some ways, this idea of having uh, an income is, isn't a bad one. That's been talked about, you know, the regular income. Anyway, I just, just wondered what the panel thought about this, especially I know Age UK is extremely good. I've ex experienced where I live, the most excellent day centres and things, and what Age can, and also Age UK in our area has done something very constructive, getting volunteers involved in doing shopping for people. Uh, they, they do do a great deal. I, I want to say thank you to Age UK, having going to some of the things myself. Thank you. Thank you. I'll pass that back to my colleagues. We very much appreciate it. Larson from Copenhagen. Um, uh, my question is, uh, it looks like uh, aging is not uh, maybe the most adequate uh, concept uh, in the sense that uh, Behind the concept of aging, there are many perspectives which have, uh, some of them have uh, pre been presented in the, the, uh, the, the panel here today. Uh, uh, one perspective is the biological, but then there is a, 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 a perspective about health. There's also a perspective about, uh, for, for example, capacities to work. And uh, uh, they are uh, summed together in one concept, aging. Where, and in that sense, uh, it all becomes diffuse. We, don't not, we do not really know what we speak about. So my question is, uh, do you have some proposals of how it would be, how a differentiation in the concept of aging should be constructed so that we would be able more precisely to express what we are speaking about. Other oh, mics coming. Thanks. Thanks. Um, you guys are babies. Um, <laughs> I, I told friends years ago that if I get hit by a truck and the headline says elderly woman hit by truck, sue the press <laughs> because I don't, the word elderly, just, I mean, it just categorizes, dismisses, marginalizes. And I find myself being marginalized in ways that are really annoying, mm -hmm. that even those little things where you can earn a little extra money being part of some market research thing and meet with somebody answering some questions and get 45 pounds, which can pay for some tickets to the National Theater. Um, as soon as I reached a certain age, typed my age in on the thing they sent me, sorry, you don't qualify, they just completely, they will not talk to anybody over a certain age. They're not interested in doing research, like our money doesn't mean anything. So just in terms of empowerment, of getting rid of terms like elderly, I had a stroke three years ago, lost a lot of my vision. When I went to a hospital, to an outpatient clinic, over the door it said, elderly patients, outpatient clinic. <laughs> No thanks. You know, that the whole thought process, how do we get, we need an organization run by us to marginal, not to fight this marginalization and to empower us. Because yes. I am not some little old deer sitting in a little <laughs> church thingy, uh, you know, once a month. It's, 
But people say, when people hear that I've had some vision loss and my age, a lot, and they don't know me, they'll say, well, is anyone looking after you? <laughs> eh. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> I mean, I, I think there's a strange shame that goes with aging because of the attitudes towards aging. You know, we become invisible, mm -hmm. and then we become slightly ashamed of getting old and our body letting us down and... I mean, I've got a little story, actually. Just very recently, I was sitting on the underground, and I wasn't sitting on the underground. I got into the tube, and it was really, really crowded. And a young man got up and offered me his seat. And I looked around, and I thought, but that person, she's older than me. Why are you offering... And I was so shocked by the fact that this young man was offering me his seat that I, I said I was going to get off at the next stop. So then, of course, I did have to get off at the next stop. <laughs> And now when I get on the tube, I stand with my face to the door because I'm so scared of people thinking of me as older. And so I'm part of the problem. I think of ageing as something that's a bit humiliating and, a, a, you know, something that I don't want to be associated with. And I think a lot of us do that. And so people who are old often talk about people who are old as, as them. They don't say us, they say them. It's like something we don't want to... And we kind of almost need to begin with that that sense that age is something that's a bit shameful and a little bit creepy sometimes and people talk to people you know i've been at places where old people are talked to very very loudly <laughs> and slowly as if they they're three and they can't really understand so yeah well <laughs> Well, what are we going to do about it? I think you said view it as an accomplishment. <laughs> view age as an accomplishment. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there is legislation that should be, you know, the Equality Act specifically, specifically, um, out for the first time, outlawed age discrimination in goods and services. I'd be very interested to hear more about that market research case. However, <laughs> changing the culture is the really difficult thing. And that's going to take much longer, um, apart from the fact that, of course, you know, she, the workforce needs older workers as well. So um, people talk about owning your age, etc. But actually, you know, that's it's slightly. One feels as though that's putting all the onus on us. As, sorry, us. Yes, us again. Yeah, yeah, but it's also about kind of respecting things that aren't just youth and success and individuality and agency and all these words that we have when we're young and we hold on to. So it's about thinking that it's all right to be vulnerable, that actually you've given in your time and it's all right to accept. Um, and also about redefining what we mean by care in our society and who we care for. I mean, we were, you know, you were talking about kind of how to kind of re redefine and kind of sharpen up the views of aging. I mean, one of the things that I feel really strongly about is care, the kind of act of care, and I, I don't know if it's the same in Chile, is so demeaned now, is that, you know, people who touch bodies, people who do the kind of the close, intimate work are so undervalued. Um, and that's just got... I don't know how that's got to change, but that's just got to change. I think it's in the world... Not the, uh, yeah. Yes, not only England or Chile. <laughs> Do you want to add anything on this idea of conceptualizing age? And um, I could. There are other indicators, but um, I mean they're fairly technical, and they, I mean they're to do with 
how long people expect might expect to live in. I mean, I could, perhaps we can talk about that afterwards. They're, I mean, they're a bit sophisticated, I think, to go into this set. Uh, we're, 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 we're past time anyway. Yes, right. great. Yes, and we are past time. So I want to take this opportunity to take, thank the panelists. It's been really a great opportunity to hear from all of you. Oh, thank well, thank you. you.